All right, well, we're in Philippians. Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1, we're going to look at verses 27 through 30 this week. I want to thank uh, Marty for preaching last week and getting us uh, into the Word. Uh, it was a really cool passage of Scripture. I hope that you enjoyed that. Philippians is a great book. So much practical stuff in Philippians, so much gospel stuff. And, you know, it's, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison. So, I mean, that just... When you think about the context of this book being written, and when you go back and read about the start of the Philippian church in Acts 16, uh, really brings a lot of meaning to the words that we read here. So let's look at Philippians 1, 27 through 30 together. Paul says, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am, or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Let's pray. Jesus, this is your word. You used the Holy Spirit to inspire Paul to write these very words. God, I pray that you would speak to us. That you would open our ears and open our hearts and open our minds to be ready to receive what you have for us in this passage. Help us, help us to be ready for the encouragement that comes to us through Paul's pen to the Philippians, and here we are centuries later, 2,000 years later, receiving your word in a very similar way. God, speak to our hearts and our minds and cause us to want to obey you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so the church of Philippi is a young church. Uh, like, I, like I mentioned a minute ago, if you look at Acts 16, you can see how the church began. Paul was on a missionary journey. He was going about planting churches in different towns, and he comes to this town uh, called Philippi, which is an important part of, of the Roman Empire, the, uh, the formerly the Roman Republic. And he enters into this town, and he, he, there's no synagogue there that we're aware of, and we know this because Paul would always go firstly to the synagogues, and he would preach the gospel there. Instead of going to the synagogue, the Bible tells us he actually went outside of the city gates, and he found a group of women praying. One of them, who's identified as Lydia and called a God-fear, usually uh, God-fear means a non-Jew who had adopted the Jewish faith. Uh, we're not told specifically if that's the case. I, I can't confirm or deny if that's what's going on. But this sounds to be a non-Jew. She's a wealthy merchant. And Paul, she's, she's one of the first people in Philippi, if not the first person in Philippi, to receive the gospel. And then there's this interesting thing that happens. So Paul you know, ministers to these women who are gathered outside of the city praying and uh, presumably seeking the Lord. This was their church service, if you will. They didn't have a building. And so they met outside of the city gates and they prayed there. And, and, and some of them received the gospel. Then Paul's back in the city and he would go back to that place each day. 
and he would continue to teach. Well, one day on the way there, if you remember this story from a couple of weeks ago, there was a, a slave girl who was demon-possessed who was following and annoying Paul. And so Paul cast the demon out of her, and this upsets her owners. And so Paul gets thrown into jail, and he's in jail for, for a, a day or two in Philippi. And he's, before he's thrown in jail, he's beaten and flogged. And so he's in incredibly terrible physical condition at this point. And then God miraculously saves his jailer, which is really cool. And so this, this church in Philippi has this history of, of Paul's visit. He was only there about a week, but people getting miraculously saved in those few days. And then Paul uh, leaves and he stays in communication with them to build up this church. And so we got what seems to be a, a rather diverse church. You have this non, non-Jewish woman, Lydia, who's wealthy. And then you have this sort of blue-collar guy, the jailer. Um, maybe that slave girl uh, got involved in the church who, who was delivered from demon possession. We don't know. But there's, there's sort of this mix of people. And now they're facing threats as a young church to become disunified in how they conduct themselves. And so Paul points out to them that they're going to face pressures towards disunity from within. That's the passage we read here in 27 through 30. He talks about the pressure from within. I'm sorry, the pressure from without. And then he's going to talk in the next few verses, which we'll look at next week, about this this temptation to be disunified from within. And so he's going to address how they're going to respond to the pressure they're facing from outside, and then he's going to address how they're going to respond to the pressure they're facing from inside. And he tells them this. He says, just one thing. You know when somebody says something like that, what they're going to say next is really important to them. Just one thing. If you only hear one thing today, sometimes preachers say that. If you only walk away with one thing today, that's kind of what Paul's doing. He's saying, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. A couple really powerful things in that short sentence. As citizens of heaven, first of all, that carries a lot of weight. Citizenship is a big deal. Uh, Most of us were born uh, U.S. citizens. Some of us had to, in this room, some of us had to become U.S. citizens. Some of us may not even yet be U.S. citizens. But I think for those of us who are born U.S. citizens, we're, we're born into maybe the most privileged citizenship in human history. I don't know if there's, there's ever been a more privileged citizenship than to be born a U.S. citizen. And I don't know about you, but I've just sort of always taken that for granted. I never really thought about anything else other than occasionally traveling abroad. You think, oh man, how how lucky I am or how fortunate I am to have been born in the U.S. But to, to those of us who have had to earn that, to those of us who have had to go through the process of becoming a U.S. citizen, and to those of us who perhaps desire that opportunity, you understand the value of citizenship. So Paul points them to this and you got to you got to understand a little bit of uh, the history of the 
city of Philippi. Philippi had a very rich history as part of the Roman Empire. This is the place where after Julius Caesar was assassinated, there was actually a massive battle that took place in Philippi where Mark Antony and Octavian came and defeated Brutus and Cassius at Philippi. This was the battle of Philippi. So Julius Caesar's assassins and those who, who wanted to avenge his death and to, to really restore the, the Roman, not so much republic anymore, but Roman Empire back into the hands of whom originally controlled it, there's this massive battle that takes place. 2,000 soldiers fight against each other. 40,000 of them die at the Battle of Philippi. And so it's got this really deep history and then after, after that happens, and this is just maybe about 100 years before Paul is writing this letter. So it's not, it's not all that old. It's, it's fairly recent in their history as a city. And so if you think of cities in the U.S. like Gettysburg, where you can't walk around Gettysburg without thinking about the battle that took place in Gettysburg and, and the richness of the history and the relevance of, of what took place there. That's sort of what it's like in Philippi. And a lot of the veterans of that battle, you see, in the Roman Empire, uh, your reward for being a soldier, especially a victorious soldier, uh, was that you got to go into retirement with a plot of land. And so a lot of Philippi was inhabited by veterans of that battle. And so here they are, they're, they're living in the city, and at this point it would have been their grandchildren that are living in the city. And so they understand, they have this connection to the idea of being citizens. They're citizens of the Roman Empire, defenders of Julius Caesar. They, they're descendants of those who fought in this important battle. And, and Paul writes to them, and he does not appeal to their citizenship in the Roman Empire he appeals to their citizenship in something far greater. You are citizens of heaven. Later on in the letter, chapter 3, verse 20, he says, Our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. If, if you, we go back to the story I was telling from Acts 16, after Paul was flogged and beaten, and arrested and thrown into jail. And then God does this miracle where he basically sends an earthquake. And all of the prisoners, not just Paul, but all of the prisoners' chains come off. And they're, they're set free. And the jailer who was in charge of them wakes up to find out all the prisoners he was in charge of are now leaving. <laughs> they're just walking out as, as free men. And he realizes that this, he's going to be responsible for this. And so he decides right then and there to commit suicide. And that might sound extreme to you. You're like, oh, so what? My boss lashes out on me all the time. <laughs> but he knew that what was going to happen to him was actually worse than suicide. And so he decided he would just end his life before the Romans had a chance to do so. And Paul says, no, 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 wait, we're not going anywhere. We'll stay here. And he preached the gospel to him and the guy gets saved. But then... The next day, the report comes from the authorities to let Paul go. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You arrested me without good reason, beat me nearly to death without good reason, 
and I am a Roman citizen. I demand that you come and escort me out of here. And that was the first that they had heard that Paul was a Roman citizen. And when they heard that he was a Roman citizen, they became afraid because being a Roman citizen had privileges. Being a Roman citizen had rights. They just assumed that this Jewish guy was a non-Roman citizen and they could do whatever they wanted to him. So Paul appeals to his citizenship and he appeals to the rights that are due him because of his citizenship. And he uses that for great gain. He uses that to his advantage. As privileged as it was to be a Roman citizen then, why doesn't Paul appeal to that? Why doesn't Paul say, as citizens of Rome? Just one thing, as citizens of Rome, live your lives worthy of the gospel. Because he doesn't care about Roman citizenship. He and the the church at Philippi are citizens of something far greater than the Roman Empire. Historically, that wouldn't make any sense to them. Historically, there was nothing more privileged than being a citizen of the Roman Empire. Paul doesn't even bring it up. It's not even worth mentioning your citizenship as a part of Rome. You are citizens of something far greater And so I would appeal to us, the majority of us as American citizens, or whatever country you're a citizen of, I would appeal to us that we are citizens of something far more valuable. That we have a citizenship that is far more privileged than any of that. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. How could we ever live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ? I can do my duty as an American citizen. I don't know if I could, I wouldn't say I I could live worthy of that. When I think about the men and women who have sacrificed their lives and who have sacrificed many of them, not just their lives, but I, I think of brothers and sisters who have fought in battle for this country, who have lost limbs, who have suffered PTSD, who have suffered traumatic brain injuries and have to live the rest of their lives like that. I, I don't know that I can live worthy of that sacrifice, but, but I can do certain things. I can, I can make an attempt to be a good American citizen. How much more is it impossible to live lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the message that the Son of God, the perfect sinless Son of God came down from heaven and died in my place who made that sacrifice for me on my behalf, who suffered the wrath of God the Father for my sins. How do I live worthy of that gospel? Can't but I can set my sights on it. I can focus my efforts and my attention to at least in some small way to live as a citizen of heaven. And perhaps by God's grace to somehow make him proud. How do we do that? How do we live worthy of the gospel? Paul gives us four things. Okay, so if you have a handout in front of you, Go ahead and grab the pen and the, and the 
seat in front of you and let's fill in some blanks together. How do we live worthy of the gospel? Let's look at four things. Number one, stand firm in unity. Stand firm in unity. Unity is one of those things that gets tossed around a lot in church in churches and, and even in other organizations. We talk about we need, we need unity. We need to be unified. And, and I think most of the time we don't even really mean it. We're not really willing to make sacrifices to, to walk in unity. Unity is great as long as you're unified to me <laughs> and you're united behind my vision but to truly stand firm in unity, we have to be willing to set aside personal preferences for the things that are most important in terms of the kingdom of heaven, of which we are citizens. Too often, personal preferences uh, become the thing that we fight over in churches. Well, I like, I like things to go this way. I want the, I want the music to sound like this and... Um, I hear the air conditioner kick on. I want it to be this temperature in the sanctuary instead of that temperature. And, um, you know, I want the money to be spent on this or I want the money to be handled that way. I, I like my pastor to, to do this and I like my pastor to do that. And, you know, these are personal preferences. And it's not that all of those are without merit and it's not that all of those are unimportant. It's that, that when we allow our personal preferences to dictate our happiness and our satisfaction with our church, then we're likely to not really be willing to stand firm in unity. And that's what Paul calls us to. That's what the Spirit calls us to. Verse 27, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or am absent, remember in the previous passage, Paul's saying, I'm in jail, I don't know if I'm going to get out or not, I don't know if I'm going to live or if I'm going to die. If I live, I think that's good because I'll get to keep ministering to you and building up the church and see you grow in faith. But if I die, I get to go be with Jesus, which I'd rather do, no offense. Um, so, but, but if I get out, if I live and I get out, I, I, I want to come see you. But if I don't, I hope that I hear this from you. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm. In one spirit, in one accord. The spirit and unity are, are often spoken of together. That we are to be united in the spirit. That we are to be united by the Holy Spirit around the gospel and in one accord. To, to do that though... It takes a commitment from each one of us that we are going to stand firm in unity. He says to stand firm in unity because to, to remain in unity is not something that you can just sort of do haphazardly. You can't just, just kind of be like kind of loosey-goosey like, yeah, if we stay unified, that's great. If we don't, you know, I guess it was meant to be. No, he says stand firm. Plant yourself. Fix yourself. Don't let anything move you. Prepare for opposition. Prepare for things that are going to try to throw you out of unity and, and, and be ready for that. Stand firm in it. I want to hear that's what's happening. I want to hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. So here we are. 
Paul writes to a young church that's growing, experiencing conversion, and he says, make sure that you're, you're focusing on unity, that you're standing firm together in unity. Here we are 2,000 years later, Redemption Church, we're a young church that's growing, we're seeing conversions, we're seeing God work, and I as the pastor, I'm looking down the road and I'm going, what's it going to take for us to stay unified? Because the more people that come in, the more ideas are on the table, the more preferences that come into play, the more backgrounds uh, of, of going to church and of reading and understanding the Bible that, that come together. And how are we going to stand firm in unity? Well, I think one of the things that we have to do is we have to make sure that we don't major in the minors. We don't major in the minors. What I mean by that is we've got to keep the main things the main things. There are, there are things that we should fight over and fight for. Like the authority of Scripture, the exclusivity of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. You know, there are things that we want to stand on that, that we, we, we don't want to just say, hey, whatever you believe is okay and whatever I believe is okay. But then it very quickly divulges into things that, hey, we can have passionate disagreements about. And, and, and one person can, can believe very strongly that Scripture's clear on this, and another person can believe very strongly that Scripture's clear on that, but they don't line up, and they're, they're saying different things. There are things that we can, we can live with disunity on some things, but not on everything. And so I've always thought it was helpful to speak of closed hand and open hand things. Closed hand things are the things that, that we'll fight for. We'll die on these hills if you, if you want to be a part of Redemption Church, at least in any significant way, um, then, then you need to hold to these things. But then we try to put as many things in an open hand as we can. We can say, hey, you know, you can believe different things about the gifts of the Spirit for today. You can believe different things um, about last uh, end times and last things and, and all that. You can believe... Um, different things on a lot of different issues and you can still be welcome here and we can still walk in unity around the gospel and around the things that, that we believe are closed hand things, but we can just agree to disagree on that. And so one of the things that I'm working on as a pastor is defining which, which things are in which hand here. And, and not just defining, because I think a lot of that's already defined, but communicating. And so uh, this fall, we're planning a membership class where we'll be able to get into some of those things. And we, we got some other things that we're going to try to do to try to communicate broadly to the church. Here's the things we'll die over. Here's the things we won't compromise. And here's the things that, hey, you know what? I know there are good Christians who are making good scriptural arguments for both sides of these issues. And we can have those debates here and we can agree to disagree, but we're not going to divide over those things. Because what's happened historically is churches have placed things that belong over here, over here. And that's why we have all of these denominations that, that I mean, if you look at the distinction between from one denomination to the next, there is a spectrum that spans um, Protestantism that there are very different churches in how they operate. But most of them, the degrees of separation from one, one denomination to the next are so small that you're like, really? You started a new denomination over that? You started a new denomination because you like to sit in pews, not in chairs. Or you started a new denomination because you like brown carpet instead of orange carpet. Like, it's crazy. We, we, we've divided over so many little things. 
And we don't want to do that at redemption. And so as I look forward and, and as a, at our church and I see people coming in from different backgrounds with different convictions, I, I want to I encourage us to stand firm in unity. Let's make a big deal out of the big things. And let's make a really, really little deal out of the little things. Don't major in the minors. Also, don't minor in the majors. Don't lose sight of the things that are most important. Don't, don't make a small deal out of the gospel. Don't make a small deal out of worshiping God together corporately. Don't make a small deal out of reaching our community with the message of Christ. Don't, make a sm- don't minor in those things. We, you know, Christians can err in that they, they have their, their, their pet doctrines, the things that are really important to them that really shouldn't be that big of a deal, and they make them everything. But also Christians can err in losing sight of the things that are most important because we get comfortable. We get comfortable here. So we want to stand firm in unity. How do we live worthy of the gospel? One, stand firm in unity. Two, Paul says contend together. Contend together. I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Contending together for the faith of the gospel. To live worthy of the gospel. We got to stand firm in unity. We have to contend together. There is a cultural and spiritual war that we are in the middle of. We're right in the middle of it. I know you woke up today and maybe everything seemed fine, but there is a battle going on around us right now. And that battle is society's war against the gospel. And Paul calls us to contend together, to get contending together for the faith of the gospel. Look around you. Do you have your brother and sisters back in this war that we're in? Not just contend, but contend together with one another, alongside of one another. You know, I'm just thinking, I, I, I don't I can't think of a specific movie where this has come from, but I know I've seen this image uh, in, in, in movies or shows or something where you've got two guys or two girls or a guy and girl, it doesn't really matter the gender, but you've got, you've got two people fighting a, a large group of people and they're in the middle of the room and they're back to back and they're, they're fighting back to back and the enemy is coming from all angles. That's what I think of when I think of Contending together. Who are you back to back with? Fighting back the enemy. Fighting back against this this onslaught against the gospel. Are you contending together for the faith of the gospel? If you're going to contend together, we need you to show up. Physically, mentally, spiritually. We, We need you. We need you here. And we need you in. Not just ah, testing the water. I mean, test the waters for a little while. If you're new, test the waters for a little while. Don't just commit yourself blindly to something you know nothing about. Get to know us. But once you've gotten to know us, if you say, this is, the ch- this is my church. This is the church that God wants me to be a part of. We need you here. We need you to show up. 
There's nothing more frustrating than when some of the players on the team won't show up, either physically or emotionally. Let me give you a couple examples. When I was a couple years ago, when I was coaching hockey, right before, well, actually, when we were transitioning out of our previous church and previous town to come and plant here in Lower Boroughs, I was coaching a, a JV team at Armstrong, and. Uh, the, the season started out, we weren't super great at the beginning of the season, but we had potential. And so we practiced hard and we really applied ourselves to a few specific things. And we were getting better as the season went on. And we really started to gain momentum about halfway through the season. We started winning games and, and the players were clicking together. And I saw a lot of growth in their skill and, and, and things were going well. And then at the end of the JV season, there's this end of season tournament. It's kind of like the, the playoffs for the, for the JV teams. And I was like, man, we're, we really got a shot at, at making a decent run here. Um, I'm really excited about how far this team has come. And we went and we won a game or two. I can't remember which round we were in. But I remember we went to, um, we went to I think it was this, I don't know if it was like the, the semifinals or the finals. I have a terrible memory. But anyhow, we were at a, a big game. And one of our best players just showed up with this attitude that, he didn't want to be there. And it showed the whole time on the ice. Several times he would carry the puck into the offensive zone. And, uh, I mean, he was one of our best goal scorers. And so, you know, he crosses that blue line with the puck. You're like, this is good. This is good. I like this. And then he'd just pull up and he'd rip a slap shot from at the blue line. And he'd come to the bench and he'd, be, and he'd crack jokes. He'd be like, yeah, I didn't really care. And we lost the game. He was there physically, but he wasn't, he wasn't there emotionally. Fast forward a year, I moved to Burrow. I'm co coaching the Burrow varsity team, and we had a really difficult season, all kinds of things going on. But same thing, I saw a lot of players growing throughout the season, and uh, we make the playoffs by the skin of our teeth. We make the playoffs in our first playoff game, and and. and we were a low seed, so we had to play a high seed, and there was a pretty big gap between us. Our first playoff game, um, our best player was ineligible to play because he spent part of the season uh, playing somewhere else, uh, another part of the country, and then he moved back home and played a few games. Our second best player uh, called me the day of, and he played on a AAA travel team, which is a way higher priority than Burrow varsity hockey. And he said, I'm not coming to the game tonight because I can't risk getting injured. Our starting goalie called me and basically said the same thing, that he's not going to play. He's going to be there, but he's not going to play. And um, so there's like three of our better players, two of our better players and, and our starting goalie. And... We go to the game and we're way outmatched and we have like 10 skaters, which you want to have like, you want to have like 15 skaters minimum, right? We've got 10, they've got a full bench and these kids come out and they played together like I had never seen them play together. And for two periods, we totally shocked this team and took it to them. But unfortunately in hockey, there's three periods. <laughs> <laughs> And there's an intermission between the second and the third. <laughs> and we went to the locker room and we came back out and slowly but surely the, team, the other team came back in it and, and they took over. And they never outplayed us, but they outgassed us. With a short bench, our guys were just dead tired by the third period. That was the only reason we lost. So, 
So when I say we, we, don't, we, need you, we need you to show up so that we can contend together, I'm talking physically and emotionally. Because we can do more with, let me carry over the analogy, don't take offense at this. I just don't know how else to say it. I don't mean this. We can do more with a less talented team and a smaller team if you're all in. If you're committed and you're, wi- and you're willing to do whatever it takes and, and you're going to give everything you got, that, that, I'll take that any day. That's what we need. So we need you not just to be here physically, but to be here emotionally. And by the way, I don't think we have an untalented team. <laughs> I think you're all great and you have great talents, okay? But we need to contend together. We're in a battle. That's why Ephesians 6, another, another letter that Paul wrote, he said in Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13, listen to this. Finally, be strengthened by the Lord and by his vast strength. Put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Did you know the devil has schemes? He has plans. He has tricks. He, he carries out attacks. Verse 12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Our war is not against people but against the rulers, the, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. We're called to contend together for the gospel. It's gonna get worse, not better. Okay, I don't think our, I don't think, I mean, we can pray and, and hope that we experience this incredible revival in America. That's happened before, but we better be prepared if that doesn't happen, that it's going to get worse, not better. It's not going to get easier to be a Christian and to, to stand and to contend for the faith of the gospel. It's going to get more difficult. And so we need to contend together. You need some brothers in arms, and you need some sisters in arms. You need relationships with one another. That's why we do small groups and do a lot of other things, like the picnic you know, that we had a couple of weeks ago, because we want you to build relationships. We want you to be able to count on the people that are around you. And so look around and think, who, who, whose back do I have? Who am I standing with? Who's standing with me? Who's covering me in prayer? Let's be that kind of church. I got to keep moving. So two, contend together. Three, not being frightened. You know, I sit up here and I'm like, doom and gloom. It's going to get so bad. But we don't need to be afraid. We shouldn't be frightened. Don't be frightened. Verse 28 says, not being frightened in any way. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. And so those who oppose us, and those who oppose the message of the gospel, and those who want to persecute us, and those who want to take away our rights, and those who want to throw us in jail, and those who want to punish us for preaching the gospel, and for standing on the word of God, don't be frightened by them in any way. In any way. Why does he say this is, this is 
hard to hear, but important to realize. This is a sign of destruction for them. Their opposition to the gospel means that they're on the wrong side of this battle. It's destruction for them, but it's salvation for us. And salvation, I love that Paul always is quick to remind us, salvation is from God. You know, if, he, you, know, if you hear it this way, Paul's saying, well, you're on the right side, they're on the wrong side. You can start to kind of get arrogant. Yeah, I'm on the right side. No, 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 no. It's only from God. It's by God's grace. It's only because of his mercy. So don't be frightened. Here's the spoiler alert, guys. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. That's guaranteed. There's no other possible outcome. Jesus wins. The end has already been written in that sense. He wins, and we win with him. Human government is so imperfect. I constantly find myself going, I just can't wait for King Jesus to come. Because his government is flawless. He governs from love and justice. He governs in a way that will bring perfect peace on the earth. I can't wait for that. Can't you wait till you have to stop turning on the news and getting frustrated like, what are these idiots doing now? <laughs> Red, blue, right, left, it doesn't matter. You're like, what are they doing now? Are they serious? Are they just, is this a competition to see how many ways we can screw this world up? But Jesus wins and Jesus is coming and we win with him. So then our response to our opponents should be try to, to, be, to, try to win them over to the kingdom with us. There are opponents in the gospel message, but they're not our enemies. They are lost in darkness, and we want them to come into the light. Don't be deceived by their opposition. Don't be deceived at times by their hatred. What they need is salvation. When we were at camp this week, uh, I, I hate to tell her story. Reese is so excited, by the way. If those of you who have a relationship with Reese, my daughter, you need to talk to her this week. God has just done really, really cool things in her this week. Like, it was really awesome to see God work in her life uh, at the camp we were at. But she was put in charge. Um, her and another girl were put in charge of six teenagers. So the, I'll try to make a long story short. The camp is is kind of like, so families come in who have Children with disabilities, sometimes it's a spouse with a disability. And there's just activities all week for all age groups and, and stuff. And so one of the things, like, um, the, one of the distinguishing things there is that if you are a sibling of a brother or sister with a disability, but you don't have a disability, um, you know, a lot of places try to just make a big deal out of the sibling who has the disability. Well, Johnny and Friends really tries to make a big deal out of the siblings who don't have a disability, too. And so they plan all these special things, and it's really cool to watch. But Reese and another girl were in charge of six what they call typical sibs, so siblings without a disability but have a brother or sister with a disability. And of those six, two of them just had really, really hard hearts on Monday when they showed up. And they did everything from Monday until Thursday evening to make everybody around them miserable. And they were, just, they were just mean, and they were hurtful, and they just wanted everybody to know they were too cool to be there and that they didn't need this. And, I mean, they looked 
they looked like the enemy. They looked like they were, they were the opposition. And then something happened Thursday night and both of them broke and cried and sobbed and hugged and just fell apart and just started just letting out everything. I mean, these were hardened teenage young men who were just letting it all out. And Reese got to see that on the exterior there's one thing, but on the interior there was this incredible need for the gospel. And there was incredible need for patient people who even though they were presenting themselves as the opposition, there was a need for patient people who would just keep loving them and loving them and being there and encouraging them to, to let go of that. We need to not be frightened by the opposition. We need to be that. We need to be what Reese got to be this past week. We need to see them not as the enemy, but as those who need to be rescued. Of those who need to be won over to the kingdom. And when you see that happen, man, that, that puts fuel in your gas tank. When you see that happen, it's so exciting to see the gospel just melt the hard hearts and just break down walls and just open people up to, to, to the mercy and love of Christ. And on the way home, and this kid, the one kid, had, he had said some pretty nasty, hurtful things to Reese um, the one night. In fact, I was, I was really angry. I, was, I think I, I was ready to fight this kid. And then I was like, no, I'm the pastor. I can't. This is gonna, this is really, people are going to be upset about that. I really shouldn't do that. Plus, I don't even know if I'm going to win, and that would be super embarrassing. <laughs> but then on the way home, um, you know, we had about a six-hour drive. And I had Kim driving for a little bit, and I'm trying to take a nap. And I'm kind of like in and out. And I hear Reese go, I won't say his name, but she's like, so-and-so just texted me. And he just, like, was like, thank you so much for everything you did this week. And she just started crying, like, just, like, ugly crying. You know, she was just so. They're not our enemies. They're going to present themselves that way. They're going to present themselves as the, they're going to. They're going to spew hatred at us, and they're going to say terrible things, and they're going to want to hurt us. Don't be frightened. Stand firm. Contend for the gospel. Lastly, number four, suffer well. Suffer well. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. It has been granted to you on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. The prosperity gospel, um, the word of faith movement, the name it, claim it gospel is all absolute nonsense. Don't believe a word of it. None of it's true. It's a man-made gospel that people are using for profit. God will deal with them. I'm not going to worry about it. It has been granted to us on Christ's behalf not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. That has been granted to you. Thank you. <laughs> it's <just> great. <laughs> not only do I get to believe, oh, this sounds good, but I also get to suffer for him. Since you, at verse 30, since you're engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. 
what stood out to me when I was reading this is the two phrases, on Christ's behalf. Christ suffered on my behalf for my sins. Yet, in some way, I get to suffer on his behalf. Not any longer suffering for my sins, but suffering for the gospel. Peter, um, the historical account that comes down to us about Peter's death is that Peter was about to be crucified um, as almost all the apostles died for preaching the gospel. Uh, Peter was crucified and he requested that he be crucified upside down, not considering himself to be worthy to die in the same way of his Savior. That's a guy that understood that it was granted to him to suffer on Christ's behalf. That's the first phrase, on Christ's behalf, and to suffer for him. Why does he need me to suffer for him? He has fulfilled all atonement. He has suffer- In terms of suffering to atone for sins, Jesus fulfilled all of that. We don't suffer to atone for our sins. What we suffer for is to be united with Christ. Have you ever... Have you ever gone through something hard that not everybody's gone through, but then you found somebody else who's been through the same thing, and there's this unity, there's this bond? Two weeks ago, uh, before I left for camp, uh, was the first Sunday that Greg was here uh, after his kidney stone issues began, and I kind of chuckled because every all Sunday morning, every time I walked by him, somebody was sharing their kidney stone story with Greg. <laughs> Oh, yours was six millimeters. Mine was seven, you know. Um, there was this strange bond between kidney stone sufferers, right? There is a bond between you and Jesus when you suffer on his behalf for him. Paul actually says that I want to know Jesus in his resurrection and in his suffering. There, he understood there was a depth of relationship that could only be forged through suffering for him. Therefore, suffer well. Suffer well. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. And we are called to suffer well. On Christ's behalf and for him. Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, he says, This saying is trustworthy. Excuse me, this saying is trustworthy. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Man, you don't want to be in heaven when everybody's trading war stories. On the other side of glory, now receiving the reward for standing firm and suffering for the gospel. And you don't want to be the only one standing there going, well, you know, everything was just kind of easy for me all the time. Because you'll be missing out. There'll be a bond that you won't experience. Don't be afraid to suffer, but rather suffer well. Jesus did. Paul did. That's what he says. He says, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, perhaps he's referring back to when he got the tar beat out of him and got thrown in jail in that first trip to Philippi. And that, you, and that you see and that you now hear that I have now. He's like, you know I'm in jail again. Why does this keep happening? Suffer well. 
follow the example of Jesus, follow the example of Paul, and suffer well. To suffer well means that we don't try to take it out on our opponents, but that we suffer in a way that will win them over. Why did that Philippian jailer come to faith in Christ? Because Paul suffered well. Because when God showed up, that man wanted to know how to be saved because he had seen the example of somebody who had suffered well. Live worthy of the gospel by standing firm in unity, by contending together for the faith of the gospel, by not being frightened by your opponents, and finally, by suffering well. Let's pray.